Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to uh, kind of base our time this morning in Titus and uh, then branch out to a couple of other places. Good to see you this morning, and we have a good number here in the building. We have a number, I'm sure, joining us online. We want to say welcome to everyone. Thank you for being here and for taking interest in spiritual things this morning. My prayer is that what we're going to study this morning is going to be of benefit to you. It has been uh, one of those things that has tickled my brain for some time, and I hope that the study that we're going to go through this morning uh, will draw your interest and then uh, will have some benefit to you. It starts in Titus 1 and verse 15. Titus 1 and verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Sometimes a a verse or an idea gets stuck in your head. And I have read through this section dozens of times. And each time I've read through it, I have noticed verse 15. Verse 15 has jumped out at me. It says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. That raises questions for me, but questions that I have not usually gone back and studied. I've got, you know, if you're at the end of Titus 1, you got Titus 2 and Titus 3 to work through. And so to go back and just focus on that has not been something I've been able to do. But the idea that all things are pure, and then the idea that nothing is pure, that just makes me say, well, is Paul being literal? Is he literally saying that all things are pure or nothing is pure? Is he really saying in verse 16 that there are some people who are unfit for any good work? Well, I want to take a moment and explore with you what I think Paul means here, because I think when we begin to probe down into this, some things will open up and some connections will be made in other parts of Scripture. So we're going to call this, To the Pure All Things Are Pure. I know it's a very inventive title. It comes straight from what he says here. But uh, what I want to do with this is I want to draw us in and see that there is a lot here for us. You might ask, well, why should we talk about this? Or why should I listen to something about this? First of all, these verses press on how we view the world. Do you look at the world and say that the world is full of scary, contaminating things? It is evil. And I've got to go out my door every day frightened, concerned about the world around me. Or is that the wrong way to view the world? Are there other ways? These verses also call us to self-examination. If he gives two groups, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled nothing is pure, well, which group do I fit in? And if I feel like I'm kind of somewhere in between, where does that leave me? But probably most of all, these verses teach us about how to make decisions, moral decisions in the world in which we live, because they are about how we view things and make decisions about the things that we have to do on a day-in and day-out basis. You make decisions, I make decisions. We all need help figuring out how to make the best decisions in the world in which we live. So I want us to take some time and work through this. Now, to begin with, we need to introduce a little bit of our context. Titus is the letter that Paul writes to Titus as he's left him on the island of Crete to set some things in order. One of the main things is that he needs to appoint elders in every city. He says that in verse 5 of Titus 1. And as he describes the qualifications for what an elder or a bishop should be, he really focuses in on how a bishop should be able to correct people who are teaching false things. In verse 9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you get a hint already that there are some problems on Crete 
that have to do with people who are teaching things that are wrong, and elders need to be prepared to contradict that, to fight against that by having proper teaching. Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So these people, this is my interpretation, are Jewish Christians. He calls them in verse 10, those of the circumcision party, but they are teaching things that have a Christian flavor and yet also have a Jewish flavor. And so there are a couple of things that are a problem with that, particularly in verse 10, he calls them empty talkers and deceivers. And in verse 11, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So part of the problem is their teachings are sort of this melding of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Part of it is they're teaching for shameful gain. Their motives are impure. So verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is one of those that will kind of make you chuckle. First, it's that Cretans are always these things, which kind of says, oh, well, thanks, Paul. And then Paul says, by the way, that's true. Okay, which is, whoa, even worse. Uh, I don't think Paul is saying that literally every Cretan is all these things. What he is saying is there are some currents in the culture that lead in this direction. In fact, in the Greek, the word, there's a verb for to Crete, and that word meant to lie. Okay, so it is a, a feature that is well known among these people. He says these people, these teachers, are acting like Cretans in the worst sense of the word, which, by the way, that's still a word in English for somebody who's kind of a terrible person. So he says you need to rebuke them sharply, especially... Uh, in verse 14, that they need to be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So again, stop focusing on things that are not really God. They're God-related, but they're not from God. They're not God's will for you. And instead, the commands of those who reject the truth, who turn away from the truth. So I think what you get here, and the, the sense I get in terms of what was being taught and done on Crete, Sounds an awful lot like a couple of other places in the New Testament. It sounds a lot like Colossae, where there were some people who were going around saying, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, making commands for people that sort of have a flavor of religious things, but they're not really what God has said. It also reminds me of what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy. Those who are commanding people to abstain from foods that are perfectly good and forbidding people to marry. They're going around making rules. You can't do that. You can't do that. And they're because they are religious figures, people listen to them, but they're not really speaking for God. So he says, don't listen to them. Instead, you need to argue against them. You need to have elders who are going to rebuke them and who are going to fight them. So I believe that what we have is a, a kind of hybrid here of applying the law of Moses to Christians and then binding some of that with some new rules on top of that. And what that practically means is that for these people, certain Animals, certain places, certain practices, certain people are defiled, and they make you defiled, just like under the law of Moses. Certain objects, certain foods, if you touch them, if you are ingesting them, they make you defiled. And that is the context for our verse, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So I want to think with you for a minute, given that background about purity and defilement. Let's take that first uh, section. To the pure, all things are pure. 
to the pure, those God has purified. Paul is saying that the world looks different. No longer do we see the world as full of defiling things. All things, he says, are pure. Now, the immediate application is probably to food. Like I've said, I believe that part of this is about them binding things that are part of Jewish tradition and part of their own commands. But I want you to notice how often when food is described, something very similar to this is said. This is 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4. It says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. We're talking about food here. And he says, because it's created by God, it's good. It takes us back to Genesis, right? When God creates something, he looks at it and he says, it is good. So if God makes something good, why would we think it is defiled? He is saying, no, that's not what's happening. You're not defiled by eating something. Instead, it's good and it's not to be rejected if you receive it with thanksgiving. But I want you to notice how open that is. Everything created by God is good. To the pure, all things are pure. Paul writes in Romans 14, also talking about food in this context, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Nothing is unclean in itself. He says a little later, this is Romans 14, 20, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong to make another stumble by what he eats. To the pure, all things are pure. I want you to notice how sweeping that language is. Nothing is to be rejected. Or here, nothing is unclean in and of itself. Everything is clean. So, while in the immediate context, I think that this phrase is talking about something like food, I also believe there is something bigger here. That is, when we are purified by God, that purity liberates us to see and use the things God has created the way God intended them to be seen and used. So when we have a clean heart, it opens us up to new possibilities. All things become pure. I want you to leave your marker here in Titus 1. Go with me over to Luke 11. As I dug deeper into this, what I saw is that there are some rather obscure sayings of Jesus that fit really well into this and really have the same basic idea as what we've seen in Paul's writings. Luke 11, I want to read beginning in verse 39. This is as Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and they're kind of fussing at him for not washing before he eats. Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. So he's critiquing the Pharisees. You only clean up the outside. You want to look good to everybody else. You're not truly cleaning the inside and becoming pure. You start acting differently without being different. But verse 41, give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. Instead of letting greed reign, like he talked about back in verse 39, you don't just give, you cleanse the inner man. You give something that is a true sacrifice. You rend your heart and not your garments. All these ideas that say you need to purify the heart. And then, then he says in verse 41, all things are clean for you. Everything changes. When you are transformed from the inside out, it doesn't just change you, it also changes the way you see everything. All things are clean for you. To the pure, 
all things are pure. So let, let's just recap. And I want to point out in everything we have read, everything, the language is so open that it probably is a little frightening to us. So to recap, to the pure, all things are pure. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. Nothing is unclean in itself. Everything is indeed clean. And now here, everything is clean for you. So instead of trying to qualify that language, which I think is our instinct, say, well, wait a minute. I, I mean, he says everything and all things and nothing, but, but maybe it's not that universal. I think instead what we should do is try to see the point that Jesus and Paul are making, that God is liberating us to see the world as not simply sinful and defiling. It is clean for us, but that is only true for the pure. So drop down a little bit. We're in Luke 11. Look in Luke 11 and verse 33. See, those who are seeing the world as pure are only those who have been purified and who are acting out of pure motives. Luke 11, 33. Luke 11, 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I've got to tell you, I don't think I've ever heard anybody preach on this part of Luke 11. That's a weird idea, right? You're talking about lamps and the eye is the lamp of the body and letting light in and your whole body is light and all that. What, what are we saying here? I want to focus just on that first part to begin with. When the eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. That the eye is the source, the, the input through which everything comes. If the eye is healthy, everything that is good can come in. But if the eye is bad, it affects everything else. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. And he says in verse 36 there, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So he is saying, if we are pure, all things become pure to us. So let me, uh, let me come closer to some practical thoughts here. I know that we've been in the abstract for a minute here. What I mean, and what I believe Paul means when he says, to the pure, all things are pure, is that there is nothing that is evil in and of itself in our world but as we view it with evil hearts or evil motives, it becomes impure. We defile it. So when we are purified, we're suddenly free to use the world the way God intended the world to be used. Let's talk about money for a minute. So money, when we have evil motives, becomes about me. Money is about how I get what I want, Money is something to be chased. Money is a, sort of a source of temptation, of grasping, of desire, because I want money to be able to do the things that I want to do with money. So money in itself is neutral. It's not good or bad. But with an, a defiled heart, I want to use it for myself and use it for evil. But when my heart is pure, I can use that same money as an opportunity to help and bless other people, to advance the cause of Christ, and to do good. Money can go either way. 
But to the pure, all things are pure. I have to be purified. My heart has to be clean in order to be able to use the things God has made to the purposes God has for them. Think about people. When I am purified, people are no longer there to be used. You are not there for me, for me to get something out of you. You are not there so that I can covet your stuff or so that you can finally give me the approval that I crave or so that you can agree with me about something or so that I can use you for my fun or for my gratification in some way. Instead, when I'm pure, I'm free to see people for what God intended them to be. That is, people who are made in God's image, people who are there to be helped and loved and encouraged and aided in their growth. That's what God wants. And when I am pure, I am now free to use other people in the way God intended, which is to help them to grow into his, uh, the fullness of Christ. Sometimes I think when we think about a statement like, to the pure, all things are pure, one of the first things my mind goes to is substances, like alcohol or drugs. You know, is that, are those things pure? Well, Suddenly, when we are purified, we see substances for what they truly are. They're not there to be abused. They're not there to master me so that I'm a slave or an addict to something. But they are there for a good purpose so that they can be wisely used in ways that help people instead of hurting them. And so I am purified. I don't need that. I'm not trying to use it for myself. I'm not trying to do something that will make me feel better. Instead... I am liberated. To the pure, all things are pure. And you can put everything, every person, every situation into that bucket. That all things are just neutral in our world. And yet we use them in the way that is good or bad, depending on our heart and our motives. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying, nor are Paul and Jesus saying, that as long as you have good motives, it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, he's going to specifically argue against that later in this text in Titus. But what he is saying is that when we are cleansed inside out, our view of things changes and our use of things changes. Everything is purified and redeemed and changed. There are still things that are wrong. Please hear me. There are still things that are wrong, but it's not the things that are wrong. It is our hearts and the goals that we have that are wrong and they defile anything so that even something good can be defiled by it. So instead of seeing a world full of evil, Paul is inviting us to see that the world is full of neutral things that we can begin to ask, what did God intend this for? And how can I achieve God's good purpose with this person, with this situation, with whatever it may be, this behavior or whatever? To the pure, all things are pure. Let's go back to Titus 1. That's only half the verse. Titus 1 and verse 15. It says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So now we need to see the other side, which is to the defiled nothing is pure. He says instead in verse 15, both their minds and consciences are defiled. So the problem here is not that they get into the wrong things. You know, oh, they found the defiling stuff, and that's a problem for them. The problem is in their own hearts. When they are defiled, nothing is pure. 
Or as Jesus said, if the eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness because nothing can get in that will be good. Everything that comes in through that eye becomes defiled by the bad eye. In the same way, when we are defiled, we end up defiling everything. Nothing is pure to us. Even good things, like the truth. He talks about the truth in verse 14. They turn away from the truth. Even good things are defiled when they enter through ruined consciences. So I want to remind you who we're talking about. We're talking about Jewish Christian teachers who are interested in serving God. In fact, verse 16 says they profess to know God. And they're trying to get other people to know God. But when their minds and consciences are defiled, what can you do? Nothing is really pure for them, and they can't give that purity to anyone else. Now, there are a lot of directions we could go to demonstrate this idea. But to me, one of the most powerful directions is to talk about when corrupt people try to offer God worship. Worship is a positive thing. It's good. It's intended for our good. It's intended to be a blessing to us and to draw us closer to God. But when we are defiled, even worship can become defiled in our hands. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. I want to show you this here. Isaiah 1. We have noticed this uh, in our men's study in Malachi lately where, where God has said, I wish somebody would just shut the doors so that you guys would quit offering these sacrifices. When God sees corrupt people, impure, defiled people offering him worship, it frustrates him. Not because impure people can never worship, but because if it's worship without any interest in change, then God says, what good is it? You're not doing any good. You are defiling worship. Isaiah 1 and verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So yes, God says, stop worshiping. I've had enough. In fact, he goes way farther than that. He says, I hate this. I have no interest in what you're doing. These are the things he commanded. And he says, I hate them when you do them. Now, what's the problem? It's not that they're doing things the wrong way. I mean, they might have been, but that's not where God's focus is. God's focus here is on the fact that your hands are full of blood. So you're going and living like you want and hurting people and defiling yourselves. And then you want to come to me and act like everything is okay. Let's go worship God. This happens over and over again in the Old Testament, by the way, where worship is just the ritual we do. Maybe when we feel bad and we go and we say, yeah, I feel bad, but God is great. God is good. And then we go out and do the same thing again. So there is worship, but it doesn't do any good. And God says, just, just shut it down. I don't want it. It's not doing you good. It's certainly not doing me good. What's the point? To the defiled, even something good 
becomes defiled. This is Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I hate it. I won't accept it. won't listen to it. When we are defiled in mind and conscience, we just end up defiling good things too, including something like worship. I want you to go with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 talks about this status of mind uh, that the uh, Gentiles reached. Sometimes I think we underestimate how powerful this hardening of the mind can become when he says mind and conscience are defiled and what that looks like and how that plays out in the things that we do. Paul certainly has a lot to say about it in Ephesians 4, and I am not sure that we uh, can take enough time thinking about all the different ways he says this in these verses. Ephesians 4, 17. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now that is a description of people whose minds and consciences are defiled. And you can hear it in all the different words. He talks about they are darkened in their understanding in verse 18. There is ignorance that's due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They are not interested, and they're hard against any interest. But what I want you to see is their mental corruption colors everything. You can present them with the gospel. You can live the life that Jesus lives in front of them and they say, no thank you, not interested. Or they might even say, that's bad. They are hardened against God. Their conscience is violated. It is seared. It is dead. It wants only to do what it wants and it finds justification in whatever way it can. Now when that heart looks at the world, what does it see? It sees a world full of things it can use for its benefit. So that heart says, I want to possess money because I want it and I can buy the things that I want with it. I can use the people I need to use to get it or use people when I have it. I need people when this is my heart because people validate me and make me feel good or I can use them for my own purposes I need substances to feel better about myself, and so I will take and grab and use. I do what I feel like in this mindset. Every situation is ruled by me and my needs, and so every situation, no matter how good, contains the possibility of defilement. Nothing is pure because the eye is bad. So everything I see becomes another instrument for my impurity. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever been so mad at somebody? Maybe you're bitter. Maybe you're jealous. Maybe they just said something and you can't see past it. Have you ever been so mad at somebody that you could not think a single good thing about them? Or have you ever been so mad that somebody said something about that person and you just couldn't contain yourself? You had to correct them. If they say something good, you got to, you're wrong about that. You'll never believe what they said. 
Have you ever been so driven by the desire to do something or to have something, even if it was bad, so driven that nobody could talk you out of it? Like Balaam, just determined, doesn't matter if donkeys are talking to me, I'm going to go do what I want to do. That's the mind we're describing. Our minds and our conscience color how we experience the world. And a defiled mind makes neutral things evil. So you see what is said here is actually truly powerful. That instead of looking around the world and other people and money and all these things as if they are the problem, we need to look a lot closer to home. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing is pure. Let's go back to Titus 1. In verse 16 of Titus 1, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So you can see Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that if Christians are acting out of that defiled mind or if they are being influenced by somebody with that defiled mind, then they can become detestable and disobedient and unfit for every good work. Even good works will be corrupt in their hands, which Titus is a lot about good works. They cannot be in that state the people God has called them to be. So what do we do with this? I want to present you with three uh, questions that will help us in decision-making, and then we'll be done for this morning. First of all, when you're making a decision, ask the question, what is God's purpose for this? So if all things are pure, then we're acknowledging that no object or situation is inherently sinful. God didn't create money so that we would be greedy. God didn't create sex so that we would be fornicators. He didn't create alcohol so that we would be drunkards. He didn't create marriage so that we could have somebody to boss around. He didn't create parents and children so that children would have somebody they have to listen to and parents would have somebody they could finally control. That's not God's intent for these relationships. So it begs the question, why did God make this? What is God's purpose? And that's the question that will help our decisions. What is his good purpose here? When God created the world and he said, this is good, What did he want to happen in that world? And what did that mean in this relationship, in this situation? And is my behavior reflecting God's good purpose? I really think this will open our eyes to the situations and behaviors in our lives if we ask it honestly. And once we have been purified in heart and spirit, we're free to pursue God's purposes instead of our own. Instead of this being about what am I getting, what do I like? Second, what is my motive? So I want to remind you that what Paul has said in this text is really groundbreaking. He has said that two people can look at the same thing and one of them come out of it pure and the other come out defiled. See the same neutral thing and see two opposite conclusions. It can defile one person and not the other. Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. This text describes teachers who are insubordinate, who are teaching for shameful gain, things they ought not to teach. It's about motives. So it's a probing question. When you begin to try to make a decision, ask the question, why do I want to do this or not do this? What am I thinking? Where is my heart? And watch out for the possibility that we are just being driven by our desires. I just want to do it. I just want this. That comes out especially when we argue things like, well, the Bible doesn't condemn it, 
so it must be fine. Because what is behind a statement like that is usually, I want to do it really bad, and God's going to have to really pull out all the stops to make me not. In that situation, it's not that the object or the situation is a problem. The problem is in the heart that is no longer pure in its motives. So these passages challenge us to do more than simply do the right things. They say, no, in these situations, we need to do the right things for the right reasons. Why do we worship? Why do we serve others? Why do we live for God? What's going on in our hearts? And if we could be honest about that question, it will be a powerful indicator of how we make decisions. And the last question is this. Do my actions make, match my claims? That was verse 16, by the way. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. So that's possible. Confess something and not live up to it by the way that you live. So when I have a decision to make, this is a question to ask. How does this decision match what I've already committed to Jesus, to my brothers and sisters, maybe even to my mate? Is it matching what I claim? Is it consistent? When Paul says that all things are pure, he's not saying that all actions are acceptable. That is not true. He is saying that pure people live consistent with their commitment. They made a commitment to Jesus. They professed him. And now in works, they continue that profession. So what we need is to regularly remember the claims and commitments that we have made and then act out of them. So I hope you see this text has a lot to it about how we view the world, about self-examination, and about how we can be equipped to make moral decisions. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing is pure. The question is, which one are you? And how is that living out in your life? Thank you for your attention. We'll be dismissed for a few minutes.